are found in the Torah, and we delve into its deeper mystical meanings, and we learn and we look at its soul, not just its body, and we get deeper and understanding and appreciating all the different parts of the Torah. Are you guys cool? Let me make sure last time. You guys not? Just give me a second. Or we want to check the back door. I think someone's trying to get in. They can see us. The camera's facing that way. The computer's the camera. The camera's right over here. They can see you, no? <laughs> yeah. They can? No, they cannot. Oh. They can it's only like, see you. Oh, <laughs> they can see each other. Oh. They see each Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, to close the door, but leave the, that door open so people know we're in here. Yeah. Okay. We're back again. As we did in previous lessons of this course, we're going to explore today one of the foundational stories that are in the Torah, delve into its deeper meanings, its mystical meanings, and see what it teaches us about not only in the story of the Torah, but also how they can make our lives better in deeper and so well. And as we usually start with a little video that gives us a story and helps us understand the story, unlike we did in the first two stories, we will begin by watching a video. However, what we're going to do today when we watch the video, we're going to split the actual story in three parts. So we're going to start with the birth of Jacob and Esau. Then we're going to get, as they get older, then we're going to get to their blessings. And the video is basically the text that you're going to be seeing in text one on page 78. So bear with me now. We're going to start the video, which is going to help us understand the story of Jacob and Esau, how it's mentioned in the Torah, and then we will get right into the meat of it. Rabbi. Yes. Can't hear it. Okay, one second. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Share computer someone. Huh? There you go. I'm sorry, we'll we'll start it again. Hopefully by class number six we'll get it all right. <laughs> After many years of barrenness, Isaac and Rebecca's prayers are answered, and Rebecca conceives. But this is no ordinary pregnancy. Her children struggled within her, and she said, If so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of God. God said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two kingdoms from your insides will diverge. Kingdom will overpower kingdom, and the elder will serve the younger. Her days to give birth were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb. 
The first one came out ruddy, his entirety as a hairy mantle, and they called his name Esau. After that, his brother came out, and his hand was grasping Esau's heel, and he called his name Jacob. The lads grew up. Esau was a man who knows game, a man of the field. And Jacob was a wholesome man, a dweller of tents. Isaac loved Esau for the game in his mouth, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, so as you seen from the start, and I have to get go here, Esau and, ya- Esau and Yaakov, Esau and Jacob are twins. The very fact that we call them twins, that means there's some symmetry between them, and there's some equality between them. But on the other hand, we see that they're very different. And even before they come into this world, J- uh, Rebecca is told, in a response to her query, what's going on with inside of her, as she asks the prophet, and he, she is told, as you see in text number one, Two nations are in your womb, and two kingdoms from your inside shall diverge. Kingdom will overpower kingdom, and the elder will serve the younger. Those are the words of the Torah that were told her. So in other words, Rivka's told, instead of a struggle taking inside of you, it's not two ordinary kids. You're talking about nations, kingdoms that will continue for generations, and as we see indeed for much of history. Then Rivka is told something very interesting. Kingdoms will overpower the kingdoms and the elder will serve the younger. Meaning that the struggle that's beginning in the womb, the fight that you feel inside of you is only getting started. It's going to continue and continue and continue. And in fact, even from the very moment that they were born, what was Jacob doing? Holding on to his brother's heel while he was coming out. The difference between the two brothers, the Torah continues to say, one was a man of a field and one was a dweller of tents. But then it goes a step further to the extent that Rebecca loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. Or Esau liked Isaac, loved Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, the the Torah doesn't tell us why Rebecca loved Jacob. Well, some people will say the obvious reason is that most Jewish mothers would rather their children sitting in tents than being out there in the field hunting. That can be a very obvious reason why Rebecca loved Jacob. But Rivka also may have been acting and fulfilling a prophecy that she had received, which was that the prophet told her, the elder will serve the younger. So if the elder were serving the younger, which one did she feel is going to be the leader, so to speak, was going to be Jacob, because he's the younger. The question is then, why would Yitzchak love Jacob, who was a man of the fields? Esau was a person who loved the field. But why does it say he loved the person who was a man of the field? Because he had game in his mouth. What does it mean, game in his mouth? And over here, there are two interpretations for it. The simple interpretation for game in his mouth means, Rashi explains, that Yitzchak loved the delicious food that Esau would get. It was fresh hun. He would bring it in, and he just enjoyed his food. A second interpretation is that Yitzchak was taken by the fact that Esau 
was very conniving with his mouth, was very convincing with his mouth, that he would talk in such a way that he presented himself as a holier person, as a special person, as a unique person. And the respective roles that we find over here that Yitzchak and Rivka had within the brothers take on a greater significance because, as we're going to discuss today, and what the just, what the basic gist of our lesson is going to be about is the stolen blessings. But this more or less summarizes Yitzchak and Rivka's attitude towards their children, where Yitzchak loved Esau and Rivka loved Yaakov, loved Jacob, and therefore you see that there's a certain type of relationship that the mother or the father has to any particular one of the children. Are we clear? Does anybody have any questions before we continue to the next part of the story? Okay, we're going to get to different questions in the story, as you'll see as we move on. So let's move now to the second part of the story as we see it. Text number two. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dimmed of sight, and he called his elder son Esau, and he said to him, Here, please, I have grown old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, please, pick up your implement, your sword and your bow, and go out to the field and trap game for me. Make for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me, and I will eat in order that my soul should bless you before I die. Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau, and Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Listen to my voice, to that which I am commanding you. Go now to the flock and take for me from there two goodly goat kids, and I will prepare them as delicious food for your father, such as he loves. You will bring to your father, and he will eat, in order that he should bless you before his death. Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Here, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I will be in his eyes as a trickster, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, your curse is upon me, my son. Only listen to my voice and go take for me. Rebecca took the desirable garments of her elder son Esau, and she dressed her younger son Jacob. And she dressed the goat kid skins on his hands and upon the smoothness of his neck. He came to his father and he said, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Isaac said to Jacob, Please approach and I will feel you, my son. Are you this, my son, Esau, or not? Jacob approached his father Isaac, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, and the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were as the hands of his brother Esau, Harry, and he blessed him. God shall give to you of the dew of the heavens, 
and the fat of the earth, and an abundance of grain and wine. Nations will serve you, and kingdoms will bow to you. You shall be a master over your brothers, and your mother's son shall bow to you. Those who curse you shall be cursed, and those who bless you shall be blessed. Rabbi, I have a question. Go ahead. Who's talking? Maren. Oh, I don't see you. That's That's okay. Um, Question. They said that, and I read this 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 week when we had the parsha. They she they said that she killed the two goats. That he she asked for two goats, but she only gave him one goat to eat. Am I correct or am I mistaken? Got some leftovers. Okay. Um, yes, two goats. In fact, if you look in the commentaries, it said symbolic to the two goats that were going to be later on. But that's just a, a technicality in the story. I'm saying what she actually served him and what he actually ate. You think two goats, he can eat two goats, even one goat, how much was he able to eat? So it's just what he slaughtered and he slaughtered maybe to have some for later. So that's... Uh, we don't know the, Latin, the rest of the story, so to speak. So there, so far, when we look at this, there's many questions that we can ask in these episodes. And there are many questions that this narrative can bother us from the beginning of stealing the blessings, the right of the firstborn. But we're going to focus today on five questions which are trying to encompass all of these issues. And by understanding with the perspective of where Rebecca, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob all come from, we'll have a better understanding and a better grip of what's going on. So let's start with our questions. Question number one. Question number one. We know that J. Rebecca was told that there are going to be kingdoms that come from you. What is the deeper meaning of these two kingdoms. What are they fighting for? They started fighting already in the womb. Rebecca says, and Rebecca's told by the prophet, they're going to continue fighting. The younger should overcome the elder. So what are these kingdoms? And what are they fighting for? Question number two. If Jacob was supposed to lead, like the prophecy was, the younger will be the elder, then why was Ace of the elder? Let Jacob just be born first and let him be the one in charge. Why does the elder have to be born first and then say the younger will overtake the elder if it was all prophecy? Why create an upside down situation where Yaakov is struggling for this lifelong position of being on top? Just create him on top to begin with. Number three. Why did Isaac favor Esau over Jacob? And why was it that Rebecca saw it the opposite way? Isaac saw the materialistic Esau, who was a person of the field. He knew he enjoyed his game, but he wanted to bless him. While Rebecca saw Jacob and she wanted that he should be blessed. Why did Isaac want to bless Esau and Rebecca want that Jacob should be blessed? Question number four is, what's the significance of the hunted game? Was it that Isaac just loved good meat, fresh meat? That he wanted hunted game from the field? Why is it so important in the story that he tells the son Esau, go outside, get me some hunted game, 
and only then will I be able to bless you. Why does the delicious food have such an importance? And finally, number five, which is probably one of the biggest questions that many of you ask, is why deception? If Jacob was the one to get the blessings, Rivka could have simply told her husband, Isaac, I want a, uh, a Jacob to get the blessings. You're blind. You don't see what Asaph is up to. Why don't you give Jacob the blessings? Were they not in talking terms? Why this whole method of deception that she had to take the year from her son Asaph and put it on the coat and everything else? Why not just do it? What was it? But he knew what he was because we do say that it didn't just start. He started when he was 13 years old before Yitzchak got blind. He knew he was a man of the field. So what's going on over here? So now we're going to explore these ans- the answers to answer these questions. I'm going to try to go through them one at a time. And let's start with the first question. The first question was going back to the prophecy that Rebecca was told, that she's going to have kingdoms come from her. What are these two kingdoms? What are these kingdoms fighting over? And it's very obvious from this narrative that this sag is not just about the fortunes that Yaakov and Esau were going to have, but this was rather an historical difference that's going to stem from both of these two children, Yaakov and Esau. And the sages and the commentaries explain that actually it came about in four different ways, if you want to look at it, of Yaakov and Esau. And if you look in the figure on page 83, figure 3.1, we break it down into the difference in four different ways where Jacob and Esau split up into two different kingdoms. You have historically Esau was Rome. Esau was faces materialism, self-realization, and tov. That means historically, in daily life, internal self, and in the cosmic level. Where you have historically Esau was Rome, while Jacob was Judea. Esau symbolizes materialism, while Jacob symbolizes spirituality. Esau symbolizes self-realization, while Jacob symbolizes self-transcendence. And Esau tov. And Jacob Tikkun. We're going to go into these a little bit in depth to understand what we're talking about here. Let's start with step number one, the historical conflict. Jacob is the father of all Jewish people. That's why all Jewish people are known as the Israelites, because Jacob's name was also Israel, Yisrael. Esau was the father of the Edomites. The Edomites initially started off with a small little section in the land of Israel, but eventually, as we know, they became as part of Rome. And these two nations, the Romans versus the Jews, have been a constant struggle and a constant battle and clashing with a bloody conflict that constantly went on. In the first century, the Romans gained control over the land of Israel, ending the period of when the Jewish people had the Holy Temple on Temple Mount, with killing hundreds of thousands of Jews and bringing even harsher decrees and persecutions against the Jewish people until they were finally exiled from their homeland. And again, the Romans were there at the time of Rabbi Akiva, as we learned during the Talmudic sages, were trying to stop Jewish people at all times from their study of Torah. On the other hand, we also have the vast powerful empires that evolved from the Romans and the Western civilization that we are today. 
So 2,000 years ago, when these two kingdoms clashed head on, those that want to say Rome was triumphant, exiled the Jewish people, and the Jewish people were defeated, decimated, and exiled. But fast forward 2,000 years. Rome not necessarily exists anymore, right? Well, its place exists, but the Jewish people, their power, their influence, we can say that we are still a formidable being 2,000 years later, while Rome is not that formidable today. But the difference is, as we go to step number two, is the influences from the Romans, so to speak, is still today. What influences, as you can see on page 84, are questions that we have, are what influence of historical Rome can you identify in American society today? What influence of historical Judea can you identify in American society today? Which is more dominant influence of American society? Anybody for any Roman influences that you see today? Anybody? Feel free to comment from online too. What was Rome all about? Luxury, bigger, powerful, ego. That's very well in the life today in American culture, right? What Judean type of influence do we talk about? Self-discipline, morality, generosity, Judeo values. Values are very part of the American fabric today. The pursuit of peace, the pursuit of justice. So while we see that these two ideas, the Jacob and the Esau, the way they penetrated and how they came down into different lives, they were historically Edom versus Judea. Now, in their way of life, when we talk about the second level, was in daily life, spirituality versus materialism. On a deeper level, we have, on a deeper level, we have the Yaakov and the Esav. So we have the Rome as the quest for power, technology, entertainment. The Jacob, the Judea is the belief in God, morality, and social justice. Let's take a step further. On a deeper level, we know that Yaakov was a person of a dweller of tents, while Esau was a person of the field. Simply put, you can put it is, Jacob was a spiritual person, Esau was a materialistic person. But one point over here is, what is Isaac like? What does Isaac say? The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Isaac recognizes that the hands are the hands of Esau, meaning the materialism, versus the spirit. As we see in text number three, we quote from the Medrash says, two legacies that Isaac bequeathed to his sons. To Jacob he gave the voice as it is written, the voice is the voice of Jacob, and to Esau he gave the hands as it is written, as the hands are the hands of Esau. There are two dimensions of everything that God created. There's the matter And there's the spirit. Human life tries to straddle between both of them. The world of idea and the world of action. This duality is perspectives of life that we have. One perspective of life is materialism is all it. Influence, power, wealth, materialistic pleasures, and then you made it. And then there's the exact opposite. A spiritual reality. Principles, feeling, experiences having true value, that's the real purpose of life. And you have these two opposites. And over here, you have the wrestle between us every single day in the daily life. Which one should I go for? Should I go for the materialistic life where wealth, power, and all that stuff reigns? Or do I look at the spirit 
what's more important, the spirituality, the feelings, the experiences, and having true enduring values, which one's more important. And each one is trying to assert its influence over the other, trying to say, I'm more important, you're more important. That's one level. But then we come to another level to understand the Jacob, Jacob and Esau, where Esau represents the animal soul and Jacob represents the godly soul. What's the nature between these two souls? And the, the, in, the reg, in the Chabad classic, the Tanya explains that the animal soul, what is the animal soul? The animal soul drives on self-fulfillment. It's only interested in sustaining itself, its selfishness. While the godly soul looks to be able to move beyond self-interest and looks to connect with God, unite ourselves and with the source of God. That's why it's compared to a flame where a flame jumps and looks to connect with Almighty God. So these two souls are essentially two personalities that exist within ourselves. The selfish versus the selfless. The animal versus the godly. So Esau is the drive for self-fulfillment while Jacob is escaping the confinement of our ego and looking to connect something that's greater than ourselves. And now we come to another level. A level which is called Tohu and Tikkun. We are now ready to explore this fourth interpretation. Now this fourth interpretation that we're going to talk about that we mentioned before in figure 3.1 that we had on page 83 which is the cosmic level. Literally, the words to and tikkun mean chaos versus rectification. What does this mean? And we will examine this and we will see. So what is tohu? What is tikkun? So we're soon going to read a text for of what it's going to mean. But before we do that, let me just give two introductions to what when we talk about tohu and tikkun. Number one, at its highest point of origin of anything, there is no bad and good. It's beyond positive or negative. That means the way we looked at it until now, Esau is the animal inclination. Jacob is the godly inclination. Esau is materialism. Jacob is spirituality. And what did we basically say? Esau is the devil. Jacob is the angel. Esau is bad, Jacob is good. The same idea is Rome is symbolic of bad, Judeo is symbolic of good. Materialism is symbolic of bad or negativity, and uh, spirituality is symbolic of positivity. When we come to the origin of the way things are in its original source, over there, there is no positive or negative. Over there, everything is the same. Even the animal soul, which seemingly on a later level looks bad, over there it's also good. Over there, good and bad are not different. So in the cosmic duality of tohu versus tikkun, that means chaos versus rectification, and I'm going to try to use the words tohu and tikkun so we don't have to keep on translating it, is tohu is chaos and tikkun is rectification, there is no good side and bad side. There is no such thing as saying one is bad and one is good. Both are wholly positive ideas and each has its own strength and weaknesses. Each has its advantage and disadvantage. But they're all great. They're all wonderful. And therefore, those positive or negative experiences 
are only the way they are applied. But in essence, they're all exactly the same. That means they may have positive and negatives to them, meaning they have advantages and disadvantages, but they're not a positive and negative only in the way they're applied. Are you following? Note number two, we are not going to discuss every single concept of Toa and Tikkun as it's discussed in Kabbalah. We are going to discuss only the parts of it that apply to our class to be able to better understand who these characters of Jacob and Esau are. Now with those two points in mind, let's read the next um, text. Text number four on page 886. And this text is from the second Chabad Rebbe in the discourse in Torah Chaim says as follows. To understand the root of the difference between Toh and Tikkun, and how Tikkun comes to rectify and refine Toh, serving the forms of its substance, as it is known, the lights of Toh are extremely powerful and intense, as they prevail the state of abundant light and scant vessels. Because the vessels were unable to contain the light, they shattered and fell. Following that, the Tikkun reality was made with scant light and abundant vessels, with the result that the light are sustained with the vessels. Now, I know I just said a lot of words that maybe don't make sense or we don't understand. So we're going to take it apart and we're going to try to understand it on a basic level. What is light? What is vessels? And what does it mean, a world of abundant light with scant vessels or abundant vessels and scant light? Let's this language of the Kabbalah of light and vessels means the following. Let's take an example. If you look in figure 3.2 on text 87, it gives us numerous examples of what light versus a vessel. A light is the essence of something. A vessel is the structure that contains it, that shapes it. So let's give you an example. Here's an example of light and vessels. Light would be the idea in the book Vessels would be the words, the punctuation, the grammar to make sure you can understand it. Let's take the same thing about a song. Light would be the emotions in the melody. Vessels would be the notes that you should be able to hear the melody. Or in a business. Light would be the vision and the objective. Vessel would be the strategy. In a relationship, light would be the love, the expression of love. A vessel would be actions that support that expression of love. In religion, light is the beliefs and the ideas. The vessel is the customs and the rituals that we do to be able to bring those ideas into this world. So the first thing we need to know about light and vessels is that both are interdependent on one another. You can't have only light or only vessels. You can't have a book with just an idea, because you open it up, there'll be nothing to read. And I can't have a book with only words because I won't have any idea. There won't be anything to read either. So in order for a book to be able to understand and be read, you need to have the light, the idea, and I need to have the vessel, the words. Two people can love each other, but if there are no vessels to take the love and to quantify it and to put it into a certain criteria, this love is going to ultimately dissipate. And that's the same with all the examples that we have on page 87. Now, granted, the light is not so happy to be put into a vessel. Why? 
because a person, think of it, the idea, doesn't want to be contained, the concept of idea that it's ever flowing. But the only way the idea is going to be able to be appreciated is if it's contained. The container also doesn't want the idea because the idea is too much for it. But the only way the container is going to be worth something is if the idea is in it. The bottom line is every existence, especially a complex functioning existence, consists of two things. In the words of the Kabbalah, it's oiris and keli, light and vessels. Now that we know that every existence needs light and, cave, uh, light and vessels, let's go now to our next step. The difference between tohu versus tikkun. So we learned in the previous statement of the second Chabad Rebbe, he gave us an example of something called an abundant light with scant vessels. That's tohu. Tohu means there's a lot of light, but no vessels. Tikkun means there's a little bit of light, but a lot of vessels. What does that mean? Let's examine these two models. Let's begin with the Tikkun model. The Tikkun model means I have a scant light, a little bit of light, but very small vessels. What are the advantages of this Tikkun model and what's the disadvantages? The advantage of a Tikkun model is that if I have a little bit of light, but I have a proper vessel, everything operates perfectly. Why? It's a well-oiled machine. I have the vessels are containing the light. The book reads flawlessly. There's beautiful. The grammar is perfect. Everything is there what you need. What's the problem? Anybody for the disadvantage? It's robotic. There's no passion. When you're so programmed and you have everything is exactly so grammatically correct. Imagine a guy saying a story and he's all passionate about the story and in the middle you have one smart aleck and says well you just pronounced that word incorrectly what did that guy do destroyed the whole story took the whole passion out of it took the ear out of the bubble because when you're talking about a passion when you're talking about if you're looking at a uh, an abundant of vessel meaning that you need to have things in a certain box you'll lose passion now let's contrast that with a tohu vision. Tohu, which means chaos, abundant light, and scant vessels. What are the advantages and the disadvantages of having an abundant light, but no vessels for it? Anybody? So number one advantage is passion. A tohu personality, a person who has full of ideas, full of passion, full of excitement. The system is dynamic, ambitious, innovative. Well, what's the problem? It's like a fire. A fire is all passion. It's all lighting up. But what happens a moment later? It spoils them. It's unstable. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's fickle. It lacks discipline. There's no focus. Because it's all over the place. And therefore, what do you have? Conflict and strife. And as we discussed, among the disadvantages of this Tohu model is the unstable and prone to conflict and strife, which this leads to a complete breakdown. So let's take an example of some of the samples that we spoke about before of the light versus the vessels. Let's say a marriage. It's only about passion, but there's no practical application. 
It's not driven into a certain square. It's all about the passion. What happens? Look back, look down five years, it's all over. Why? Because it was not channeled into a concrete solution. There was no vessel to take that passion. Take the same idea. You can have the best business idea. But if you don't have a strategy, a plan to execute it, that plan is going to be worthless. Or you can have people have a, a wonderful ideology. But if there's no rules and regulations, that ideology is going to dissipate. And that's why it's important to have rules. And therefore, what might a religion look like or any ideology a generation later where there's no rules to it? So the two potential dangers, what we can call it from a tone model, is probably, number one, the whole thing lacks structure because it's all a bunch of ideas flying all over the place and there's nothing to solidify it. And therefore, the ideology will fade away. Or even worse, what's going to happen? When you have a passion and the passion is not structured and the passion is not narrow, focused, what happens then? That same passion that led you to where you were today to do maybe something positive can lead you to be the opposite. That means if it's a passion, let's say in a marriage, in a relationship, where the passion is only a passion but without a structure, the same passion that they were loved, now is going to use the same passion to hate each other. The ideology will be hijacked and justified behavior and saying, oh, well, it's beautiful. It was the same passion. So to summarize, just let's just summarize the concept here is Tohu and Tikkun are two models of our existence in which there are some very distinct advantages and disadvantages of both of them. Now, let me ask you, if you were God, which way would you create the world? In a way of Tohu or in a way of Tikkun? If you were God, let's go back to text number four on page 86. What did God do when he created the world? How did he go about it? What did God do? What did the text tell us? The text tells us in text number four that God first created Tohu, a world of abundant light and scant vessels. And only then did God create Tikkun. Scant light with abundant vessels. Why? Why would God first create a world of chaos and only afterwards make a world of tikkun, of structure? If the purpose and the reason and the need is structure, and that's the only way the world can operate, why create a world of chaos? Obvious, God didn't make a mistake in the process. And there's a reason of why he did it. And the reason is because God wants to utilize the advantages of both, of the structure and of the chaos. And as a result, he created first a world of chaos, then a world of structure, so that the world of structure can be infused with a world of chaos. What does this all mean for us? Think about it for a moment. What kind of life, what do you have in life? What kind of element of tohum do you have in your life going back? And what kind of tikkun do you have in your life? Where do we have chaos? And this brings us back to our Esau and Jacob. Esau symbolizes Rome, materialism, self-realization, chaos. I want everything, the passion. 
to grow, to be wealthy, to materialize, to have everything. While Jacob is more structure, spirituality, being connected, self-transcendence. In our own existence, we have as well the animal soul. The animal soul has that passion, that excitement, like an animal that keeps on working. It doesn't stop. But it's all over the place. All the spiritual soul, the godly soul, is that structure wants us to connect. That's the structure in our lives. So which one's more powerful? Is it the chaos? Or is it the structure? Which one would you say is more powerful in your life? Naturally, everywhere we look, what's more dominant? Chaos. What's more dominant in life? What's more dominant in the world? Materialism. The animal soul. What has produced the most impactful discoveries and inventions in this world was the very fact that people had passion. They had excitement. They wanted to innovate. They didn't allow themselves to be closed into a box. Think of any person or inventor that existed in this world. Why did they come up with the invention? Was because they did not listen to their predecessors. They wanted to think out of the box. But if they would only be limited to the way they were only out of the box, if the passion itself was it, would they come up with the invention? Absolutely not. They needed that tikkun element. They needed that structure to take that passion, to take that idea and bring it into reality. So then why would God create Tohu first? Why then is the world around us all about Tikkun, all about structure? If the normal is the passionate, why is Tohu so powerful? Why is it that the world, the way we look at it, looks like it's in the world of chaos? Because Kabbalah teaches us something very interesting. The lower something is, the higher it's from. Think about it. The further you find that apple on the floor, where is it from? The higher part on the tree. The closer it is to the tree, the lower part is from the tree. The higher something is, the lower it falls. Because tone, because chaos was really higher, therefore, it stems from a higher place and it's in chain of creation. It's from a higher place. And therefore it has a more primal reality. Tikkun, the world of structure came afterwards. And therefore when it's needed to control the already entrenched model of this abundant light. And therefore when there's a struggle, when there's a struggle to gain ground on materialism, spirituality will be continuing to always fight to get to the top. Why? Because at the end of the day, Tau was first, Tikkun came later, structure came after chaos, and therefore this answers our second question. If Yaakov was destined to become the firstborn and the master, why wasn't he born first? Why create an upside-down situation? Was because this is exactly what Yaakov is all about. Is because Esau and Yaakov embody the concepts of Tohu and Tikkun. Their story of their lives mirror their cosmic spheres of who they are, the sequence of creation. The earlier and powerful chaotic world of Tohu, followed by a younger one who's gentler, more harmonious, more spiritual, 
And therefore, what is he trying to do? To constantly reach to the level of Tohu. He always wants to reach that level of chaos and passion. So Yaakov is constantly struggling to reach the top. Because Esau, Bjorn Bjorn, has that world of chaos. He wants to be able to get that energy that he didn't get because he's a world of structure. Now that we take this a little further, we understand that Esau and Jacob embody two worlds, the world of Tohu and the world of Tikkun. The question is only now, what are they fighting over? Which one are they fighting over? Why does there have to be a struggle? Why the difference between the two kingdoms? Why can't the two worlds be there, each one fulfilling its role in creation? Let each one do its job. Why does Jacob have to be like Esau? And why does Esau have to be like Jacob? Why can each one just be who they are? And this was actually the heart of the disagreement between Rebecca and Isaac. Yitzchak and Rivka, in dealing with their twin sons, had a different modes of operation. And as you recall, Yitzchak wanted to bless Esau. And what did Rebecca say? No, bless Jacob. What did Yitzchak bless Esau with? What was his blessing? He blessed him with the dew of the heaven and the fat of the land. What was he going to bless him with? Materialism. What did Rebecca come along and say? No, don't give that blessing of materialism to Jacob. I mean to Esau. Give it to Jacob. And she stuck him in with Esau's garments that he should get the blessing of materialism. To fully appreciate Yitzchak's approach. Oh, we're going to find out. So to fully appreciate Yitzchak's approach to Yaakov's blessing, there's a third part of the story which happens after Yaakov gets finally the blessing and Yaakov is about to leave his parents' home to listen to the blessing of A, the blessing that Yitzchak gives Esau and then the blessing he again gives Jacob. Here's the rest of the story. as Jacob was going out from the presence of his father that his brother Esau came from his hunt and he said to his father my father should get up and eat of the game of his son in order that your soul should bless me and his father Isaac said to him who are you and he said I'm your firstborn son Esau Isaac trembled an exceedingly great trembling and he said who then is the one who trapped game and brought it to me. And I ate of it all before you had come, and I blessed him. Also blessed shall he be. As Esau heard the words of his father, he cried an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me too, my father. And he said, Your brother came with cunning and took your blessing. And he said, Is this why his name was called Jacob? Twice he has deceived me. He took my birthright, and here now he has taken my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? 
Isaac answered and said to Esau, Here I have placed him master to you, and all his brothers I have given to him as servants. And with grain and wine I have supported him. And for you, then, what shall I do, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, also me, my father. And Esau raised his voice, and he wept. And his father Isaac answered, and he said to him, Here, the fat of the land will be your settlement, and of the dew of the heavens above. By your sword you will live, and your brother you will serve. And it will be that when you are aggrieved, you will cast off his yoke from upon your neck. Rebekah finds out that Esau is so angry over having been cheated out of the blessings that he is plotting to kill Jacob. So she convinces Isaac that it is time for Jacob to travel to her hometown, Haran, to find a wife. Isaac called Jacob and he blessed him. And he instructed him and he said to him, Arise and go to Padanaram. And take yourself a wife from there, from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And the Almighty God will bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and you will become a community of peoples. And he will grant you the blessing of Abraham to you, and to your seed with you, to inherit you the land of your dwelling, which God has given to Abraham. Let's process what we just saw and heard. It is often thought that when Yitzchak wanted to bless Esav, what was he blessing him? Spiritual legacy of Abraham. And hadn't Rebecca intervened, it would have been the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you look a little bit closer, and let's look at the evidence of what we just read, the blessing is far from that. Isaac wants to give a blessing of what? He wants to give a blessing to Esau, a material blessing. What does Rebecca come inside? Shoves her son Jacob in, puts on the wool, and he gets that material blessing. What happens next? Esau breaks down and crying to his father and saying, haven't you saved me a blessing? So what does Esau get? A material blessing, but a little less, right? He tells him, You'll be a servant, you'll slug on your sword, like we just read. Because Yitzchik says, sorry, I gave all the material blessings to Esau already. I have nothing left for you. So finally, he tells him, you know what? Esau can also dwell under Yaakov's rule. Yaakov is going to be his master, but under certain conditions and so on. But then what happens next? Yaakov is about to leave his parents' home. And he's about to go to Lavan. And his wild mother tells him, go away until Esau's wrath comes down. What's the blessing now he gives him? This is to Jacob. He knows he's blessing Jacob. It's not a hide. It's not a secret. But what's the blessing he gives him? He blesses him again with the legacy of Abraham. In the words that he tells him, he says, Almighty God will bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, and you will become a community of peoples, and he will grant you the blessing of Abraham. It seems like here that Yitzchak did have another blessing while he tell Esau, I don't have any more blessings. I gave it all to Yaakov. All of a sudden, he got another blessing. The blessing of the legacy of Avram. It seems that Yitzchak was not intending 
to bless Esav at all with any type of spirituality. Only material blessings were intended to go to Esav. That means this entire drama that played out, this entire fight of blessings that Jacob was feeling, so to speak, what kind of blessing was it for? Not spirituality, but materialism. What was the blessing? For dew and fat of the earth. Nothing about Abraham, nothing about the land of Israel, nothing about anything spiritual. That means it seems very clearly that it intended clearly all along that Yitzchak viewed his children very clearly. Esau, the materialistic one, Jacob, the spiritual one. So why mix things up? Let Esau get his materialism. Let Yitzchak get his, let Yitzchak get his, uh, let Jacob get his spirituality. This was the difference between Yitzchak and Rebecca. This now answers our third question. Why did Isaac, why did Yitzchak favor Esau and wish to give him the blessings? And was he so easily fooled that he couldn't see the obvious thing that Yaakov was the worthy brother? Was because that Yitzchak and Rivka had a disagreement of how we educate our children, so to speak. Yitzchak saw the real Esav. He saw that Esav embodies the world of Tohu, the world of chaos. He understood, and this is in fact, if you look a little deeper into the words, that Yitzchak was blind, meaning he was not distracted by external things, and therefore he saw things for the way they are in their pure essence. He saw Esau for who he is in the idea before it got corrupted. Yitzchak saw that Esau's materialism was pure. It was raw. He saw he had passion. He was a man of the field, a cunning hunter. And he felt that if I bless him with materialism, he will use all of these things for a godly reason. If I bless him with materialism, that means if I feed into who his quality is, a materialistic individual, that means if I allow him and I bless him that his ideas should be multiplied, he can become a great person. He can take his passions and use it for godly reasons. And therefore Yitzchak's plan was to give each one of their children resources for them to fulfill their plan. Esau to get the the material blessings and Jacob to get the spiritual blessings. This way, everybody would be happy. Not only everybody would be happy, but in his side, this is the concept of the twinship of this world. Jacob fulfilling the spiritual world, and Esau, the material world. Esau, a person from the world of chaos, and the idea is that he should have the materialism, while Jacob from the world of structure to have the spirituality. Which brings us to answer our fourth question as well. Why all of a sudden, what was the significance that he told him, get me some hunted game so I can bless you? And why did Yaakov have to bring him some food in order to get the blessing to deceive him? Was because exactly what Asaph's talent was, being a hunter, being in the field of materialism, is what Yitzchak was convinced was going to bring the blessings upon him. That means, if Asaph brings these delicious foods, these material things, I can then bless him and use that to aggregate or make it better, his blessings. What did Yaakov come along? Yaakov wanted to get the material blessings. If he walks in as a scholar, 
His father's going to tell him, what do I have to bless you with materialism for? I'm giving you spiritual blessings. So he came in with delicious food to show that he also wants to get the material blessings. He also wants to get from the world of chaos. And consequently, it was only Yaakov who was able to produce these satisfying, delicious foods that he was able to get from Yitzchak, a blessing of materialism of the dew of the earth. Had Yaakov brought to Yitzchak the most lofty spiritual gift, he wouldn't have got any blessings. It wouldn't have helped him. He wouldn't have got anywhere. And therefore was important for Esau to bring those games, to transform the resources that he got into delicious food, while Jacob mimicked that transformation in order to receive the blessings. Why was Rebecca against it, as we'll soon see? Rabbi? Yes. Didn't um, Jacob end up with a lot of material things when he left? Um... Of course, when he left Lavan's house, correct. Right. Yes, but that's exactly where we're talking about that Jacob is now getting but the way Yitzchak saw it, he said, Yitzchak, Yaakov doesn't need a blessing in spirituality, in materialism, because that's not his channel. That's not his role. Jacob's role is spirituality, while Esau's role is materialism. And he tried to use their roles to be able to export it to, that they should be able to act upon it in a better way. Okay. Now, if Yitzchak would have ended up giving Esau the first set of blessings, what would be the problem? our mission in life and our very function of the Torah would have turned out very differently. Why? Because what happens here? What does the Yitzhak see it as? He sees the world of Tohu and Tikkun, chaos and structure as two separate ideas. He sees spiritual and physical as two separate things. And therefore he blessed Esau. He wanted to bless Esau with the material and bless Jacob with the spiritual. But instead what Jacob did was take this physical the delicious foods and bring a blessing to it. Jacob was able now to take the physical item and make it into something spiritual. Had Jacob not get the blessings, where would we have the power to take the materialism and make it spiritual? Let's see it in text number six from Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi in Torah or page 93. Jacob is the realm of holiness. Without all this, he still would have received all the supernal blessings. But the first set of blessings granted him an increase of powers to the highest levels to obtain much grain and wine, referring to the laws and the stories of the Torah that become embodied in material garments and in the actions of the mitzvahs. However, had Jacob not received these blessings, the powers of the Torah would have extended only to the spiritual realm. In other words, if Jacob would have not received these set of blessings, the Torah would not have had influence on the material world, and therefore, now that Jacob did get these blessings, the Torah influences the physical items because it was only Jacob who received these physical blessings to sanctify a spiritual world. So what's the problem here? What's wrong with Jacob getting material blessings? What's wrong with Yitzchak's plan? It seems like a great plan. The one who has a pro who comes from Tohu should get the material and the one that comes from Tikkun, from structures, to get spiritual. Doesn't that make sense? Bless each kid with the resources that they have. Why mix things up? Why Rebecca come along and be conniving and deceiving and put Jacob in a place where he seemingly doesn't belong? Because Rebecca realized something. 
Rebecca realized that indeed this is a beautiful utopian idea and vision that Yitzchak has. Remember, he was blind. What did we define blind as? Blind means that he didn't see, wasn't distracted by the outside world. He had, so to speak, a tunnel vision. Yitzchak's vision could have only worked in a world where there's no sin, where there's no challenges, where there's no problems. Yitzchak's vision would have worked in a world where there's no evil. Yitzchak's vision was blind, meaning Yitzchak was looking in a pre-tree of knowledge era. Yitzchak lived, he was a holy individual, he lived in an era where there was no evil on the world. And therefore, he saw that if somebody comes from a level of toe, of chaos, of ideas, of passion, give it to them all the way. Let them have the passion. Why? Because there's nothing that can go wrong with them. The problem is that we live in a post-garden era. We're no longer in the, in the garden. We're now after the sin of the tree of knowledge. Where materialism in the world is ruled by materialists. Where it's not always the materialism, passion, the ideas don't always rise to its true purpose. We don't always have the ability to see the true reality of those things. And therefore, that when we bless a person, giving them only chaos, what's going to happen if they don't have any structure? It's going to lead to corruption. The passion is not going to have anything to hold it, to substantiate it, and it's going to be completely destroyed. Only by giving Jacob the blessing did Rebecca demonstrate that Jacob has the ability to take the two and fuse them together. Take an idea. Imagine a guy has this unbelievable business plan. Unbelievable business plan. But because he doesn't have a strategy how to bring that plan into work, you can put in as much money as you want. But what's going to happen? He's just going to tumble over himself and eventually get himself into legal trouble because he doesn't have a plan to execute it. The same idea is what Yaakov and where Esau was. What Yaakov did was she dressed Yaakov in Esau's clothes. She supplied delicious food. What she did was she got Jacob enclosed in the material world. She took the spirituality, she took the tikkun, the structure, and put it into the chaos. And she said, here, you're now the perfect ingredient to get the material blessings. Yes, the two brothers can join forces. When can these two brothers join forces? What was Rebecca's prophecy? Is only when the elder will serve the younger. Only when a world of chaos works together in a world of structure. When Toa works together with Tikkun, then you can have a blessing. Because if you have only chaos, it can be the greatest blessing, but it's not going to work. And this was the prophecy that Rebecca saw. This was the way she saw it. And that's with the need, the why of the need of deception. Because in order for it to translate into anything substantial, as her prophecy was from day one, the elder will serve the younger. Jacob always needs to be the leader. Structure is the only way how you can take anything chaotic and make it substantial. Look at the way God created the world. First, he made a world of chaos, then a world of structure to take the passion of both of them, the passion of chaos, and put it into structure. We went through a very Kabbalistic thought. And sometimes we think about this Kabbalistic idea as something which is far-fetched, 
while it may be fascinating and talk about the mystical significance of things, but maybe what does it have to do with us? And the truth is that the very opposite. The deeper we delve into the words of the Torah and into the stories of the Torah, the very more real and relevant it becomes in our own life. The Jacob and Asaph story, the Yaakov and Asaph story is a perfectly fascinating story that has this case in point. That as long as we see it to surface as a story, it remains just that, a story. But these characters are not only characters of the Torah that we talk about from many thousand years ago, but they're characters in our every single day of life. And the more we uncover the story, the more we can see how this applies to us in our daily life, that every single one of us has a Yaakov and an Asaph, and every single one of us are approached, have the fact, have the ability, and are presented with the two approaches. With the Yaakov approach, I'm sorry, with the Yitzchak approach, and with the Rebecca approach. We each have a Tohu personality and a Tikkun personality. We have a Tohu, we have a personality which is interested only in ourself that has potential for good. And we have a Tikkun personality, a Tikkun self and firm control. But what we learn from the story is the Torah presents us differing differences of opinions of Yitzchak and Rivka. Why? Because they are both necessary. Like Yitzchak, we need to recognize the value of chaos, value of passion, the value that potential that exists within Torah for itself. And we have to see the value that exists within Tikkun for itself. But at the same time, like Rebecca, we have to understand that the only way we can get these two to work is when we have them in sync and that the structure creates a level of further chaos. That Tikkun, structure firmly, is in control of our life. Yes, we all have potential for good and Tohu itself. Chaos has a lot of good in it, but you need to have the structure to make it work. Well, let's go now to our final and last question. Why the deception? Why couldn't Rebecca just tell Yitzchak, I disagree with you, here's a better way of doing things. On a practical level, there was no better way to prevent this cosmic catastrophe than other him getting dressed up into it. The prophecy that the elder will live will serve the younger, that was that the spiritual must rule over the material, was given only to Rivka. It wasn't given to Yitzhak. Because Rivka would be the one who was going to enact it and execute it. And one of the reasons is because, as we mentioned, Yitzhak was an individual who has unadulterated holiness to him. He couldn't live in order to understand the concept of deception or of unholiness. Yitzchak couldn't even fathom that there should be even a child that shouldn't have holiness in him. So when he saw Esau and he saw chaos, yes, Esau was a man of the field. Yes, it was a man of materialism, but he only saw the spiritual value of it. And the only way that Rivka was able to tell it to Yitzchak was to deceive him. As we talk about, Every time somebody deceives somebody, even if it's for a good reason, unfortunately, there's repercussions. We talk about repercussions. The Rambam Maimonides even talks about it, that one should not even lie, even for a joke, because lying causes a person to have a certain mentality of lying, and then you lose consciousness of that lying. The same idea is also even this deception that Rebecca did to Jacob later on in life had repercussions excuse me, had repercussions on Jacob as well, as we'll talk about in the story of Joseph and his brothers. But on a deeper level, 
Jacob was compelled to do deception here. Because remember, where did we come from here? There was a bigger problem that Isaac and Rebecca were dealing with. They were dealing with a sin that started off with the sin of the tree of knowledge. How did the sin of the tree of knowledge come into being? It was because the snake deceived Adam and Eve. The serpent's deception created a mixture of good and evil. If you remember our first class, before the sin of the tree of knowledge, there was no such thing as a mixture of good and evil. They were just ideas. They weren't feelings. And because of the snake, there was that deception. There was a concept of good and evil. Now, Jacob and Rebecca, Jacob's deception had to counteract their serpent's initial deception. Let's see it in text number seven from the uh, first Chabad Rebbe. Page 94. Jacob's cunning was necessary in order to correct the sin of the tree of knowledge, which also came about through the cunning and enticement of the serpent, and which caused the coercing of all the worlds and intermingling materialism of spirituality. To rectify this, Jacob turned the tables, drawing down spirituality and supernal powers into materialism. The serpent brought evil into good. The serpent caused that materialism should be drowned into spirituality. Jacob switched the tables. His father was only interested in blessing about materialism. He brought into it spirituality. He said, I'm the spiritual son. I'm the one of structure. And I'm going to get the material blessing connivingly and deceptively to change that reality. Here, too, we have a lesson that we can learn in our life. And here we have the takeaway from today's lesson. The question that we ask, should we care about material success? Is it possible to succeed in business or in any endeavor requiring material resources if one does not care? Anybody for the answer? Of course, the answer is yes. But if you answered no to one or two, you're in the same quandary that Yaakov had. But Rivka commanded, what did Yaakov didn't want to? Yaakov didn't want to put on the clothes of Asaph. Why didn't Yaakov want to put on the clothes of Esau? Yaakov said, I don't want to deal with the materialism. I don't want to deal with the world of chaos. I don't want to worry about material success. I just want to be in a land of la-la land of spirituality. But Rebecca comes along in him and says, no, you're going to care about materialism. You're going to go into a world of materialism. You're going to put on the clothes of Esau. You're going to go out there into the world and deal with the world and care about material success. For what? To elevate it. To change it. You're not there to live in it. You're not there to become egotistic about it. You're there in the world of chaos to be able to bring structure to it. And this is what the Torah is telling us. And this is the clear message for every single one of us. Every single day we put on Asaph's clothing. Every single day we go out there into the world. And we deal with all the materialism in the world of chaos. and the world of pursuit of materialism. A world pursuit of wealth, ego, and honor. But what do we do with it? It is not, we have to remember it's only a disguise. It's not truly who we are. We are truly a misspiritual people. We are only using, it's only an ulterior motive. We are deceptive. And our purpose is that we want to take that material energy we want to take that passion we want to take that chaos and make it into a world of structure we want to take that enthusiasm that there is out there a materialistic world but we're only wearing it we're caring about materialism 
only in order to elevate it. Here is a quick summary, being that was a little bit of a tough class today, we'll go a quick summary and then we'll take some questions. Lesson three, Jacob and Esau. One, the two kingdoms embodied by the biblical Jacob and Esau exist on many levels. As the historic nations of Judea and Rome, as the spiritual and material perspectives on life, as the altruistic and selfish instincts in the human psyche, and as the cosmic worlds of Tikkun and Tohu. Two, everything is composed of light and vessels, the pure energy of the thing and the structures and the mechanisms through which it operates. But there are two models of existence. The Tikkun model is one of scant light and abundant vessels, meaning that the vessels contain and focus their energies. In the Tohu model, there is abundant light and scant vessels, meaning that the driving energy is constantly bursting free of the structures through which it is meant to operate. Three, each model has its advantages and disadvantages. Tikkun is harmonious and orderly, but constrained. Tohu is innovative and limit-breaking, but also strife-ridden and unstable. An additional disadvantage to the Tohu model is that it is prone to corruption, resulting either in the dissipation of its energies or in their exploitation by evil. Four, because Tohu preceded Tikkun, we can tap the advantages of both models, drawing on the powerful Tohu elements present in our Tikkun reality as remnants of an earlier world. But this is also the reason that the Jacob in us, our instincts for spirituality and altruism, faces an uphill battle in its efforts to master the more primordial Tohu forces in our eternal Esau, the unbridled passions of the animal soul, the uncontainable force of the human ego, and the unsatisfiable ambitions of a materialistic life. 5. Isaac believed that Tohu and Tikkun could coexist side by side, each blessed with resources to fully develop its realm in accordance with the divine plan for creation. Rebecca, however, understood that the material world that is ruled by materialists will not rise to its true purpose, but will descend into corruption. The powerful resources of Tohu can only be redeemed when Jacob is made master of Esau. 6. In our own lives, we need to internalize both sides of the Isaac-Rebecca argument. Like Isaac, we need to recognize the powerful potential for good that lies in our Tohu self. Like Rebecca, we need to understand that in order to properly utilize this potential, we have to place our Tikkun self firmly in control of our lives. 7. Every time we interact with the material world, we reenact the drama of the stolen blessings. We become a spiritual Jacob who assumes the guise of a materialistic Esau in caring about the material success for the ulterior motive of making our world a holier, more godly place. So exercise for the week. Before starting your workday, take a minute. Shift from your focus if you need to earn money and provide your material needs towards a spiritual goal of your material earnings will serve.
steal a few minutes from your material occupation and do something spiritual, study Torah, pray, or do a mitzvah, even while you're at work. Next week, we're going to be talking about Joseph and his brothers, how, it be go- how his brothers begin after a long uh, jealousy and favorite son, and where it all began, and it brings us to a discussion between the famous debate in the sages, what's more important is learning the most important thing or is action most more important? Next week, same time, same place, same channel, same Zoom account. We'll see you then. Anybody have any questions before we sign off? Yes, go ahead. Me? Unmute yourself. Yeah, Liz. Okay, I wanted to know what was the curse that Rebecca got? Because it says- She says, let um, the curse be on me? that she lost both of her children were buried the same day. But she said, if there should be a curse, let the curse be on me. Not necessarily did she get cursed, but does she say, why should I lose both children on one day? And when she sends up Jacob, and being that she said, why should I lose both children? Jacob and Esau were buried the same day, though they did not die the same day. And the curse can be also the concept of deception, as we're going to talk about next week, one of the reasons why Joseph and his brothers didn't get along can also start from the deception that Jacob did to his...